Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event details on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. In all of the years we've been coming to Afghanistan's capital city of Kabul, it's never been this dangerous. So dangerous that American personnel rarely drive on the city streets. You can hear how bad it's become in the Afghan president's voice. Your soldiers and your policemen are dying in unprecedented numbers. Indeed. How long can that be sustained? Until we secure Afghanistan. How long is that? How as long, long as secure? it takes. Generations, if need be. The U.S. isn't going to be here for generations. We will be here for generations. We do not need others to fight our fights. You had the sea coming and the river coming. Chef Jose Andres went to the devastated island a few days after the storm to see how he could help. Ah, muy bien. Gracias. He began doing what he does best. Boom. He found a kitchen, bought some ingredients, and began to cook. That first day, Andres and his small team made about a thousand meals. Since then, he's recruited an army of chefs and volunteers, and together they've served more than three and a half million meals to the hungry people of Puerto Rico. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Scott Pelley. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Lara Logan. I'm Bill Whitaker. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. The war in Afghanistan is the longest in U.S. history. It's lasted over 16 years, and in that time, America's goals and strategies have changed. Now there's another new plan. President Trump sent 3,000 more troops to train and assist the Afghan army.
But in the Afghan capital, you don't have to go far to see the problems. Kabul is so dangerous, American diplomats and soldiers are not allowed to use the roads. As we first reported earlier this year, they can't drive just two miles from the airport to U.S. headquarters. They have to fly. After all these years, a trillion dollars and 2,400 American lives, Kabul is under siege. This is rush hour at Kabul International Airport, a swarm of helicopters that's earned the nickname Embassy Air. It's how Americans and their allies working at the U.S. Embassy and military headquarters travel back and forth from the airport. It's just a five-minute flight. The chopper we boarded was making its 10th trip of the day. A few years ago, American convoys regularly drove on the airport road below. Now, the view from the helicopter window is all most on board will see of Kabul. They'll stay behind blast walls for the rest of their time in Afghanistan. We wanted to know what it says about where we are in this war if American troops can't drive two miles down a road in Kabul. It's a country at war, and it's a capital that is under attack by a determined enemy. No U.S. general has spent more time here than John Nicholson, the commander of American forces in Afghanistan. We do everything possible to protect our forces. So protecting, You're not using the roads. Protecting the lives of our troops is our number one priority. If we, if we can fly instead of drive and that offers them a greater degree of safety, then it's the prudent and, and the right thing to do. In military terms, that's called surrendering the terrain. I disagree. I think it's, it's answering our moral imperative to protect the lives of our soldiers and civilians. So that's what we do. But this isn't some remote outpost. It's the capital. When the U.S. first came here, the population was 500,000. Now it's more than 5 million. Refugees, people desperate for work, and terrorists have flooded Kabul. General Nicholson showed us how vulnerable the city has become. A suicide bomber is going to go in here, he's going to kill himself. He doesn't care about his future. Vastly uh, easier uh, than what, what the Afghan security forces have to do. Because he doesn't have to have an exit strategy. Exactly. How easy is it to infiltrate the city, especially one this big? Yeah, right now, uh, it's easier than we would like. General Nicholson took command in 2016, shortly after the U.S. cut troop levels to fewer than 10,000. The enemy filled the vacuum. Suicide bombers have terrorized Kabul ever since, shattering police stations, mosques, and foreign embassies. This truck bomb last year killed 150 people. It was the deadliest attack in the capital since the start of the war. The level of brutality, the level of heartlessness is unbelievable, and we have to muster all our resources to be able to deal with this. Afghan President Ashraf Ghani rules from the presidential palace that's occupied the city center for more than a century. We noticed the walls around him and the rest of the city have expanded and grown taller since our last visit three years ago. 
some of the streets we traveled turned into tight corridors of 20-foot-high concrete barriers. It made it hard to tell where we were. Parts of this city now are unrecognizable. What happened here? The war is changing from a war against the armies to a war against people. More civilians are dying in Kabul every year, and your response is more walls. 21 international terrorist groups are operating in this country. Dozens of suicide bombers are being sent. Their factories are producing suicide bombers. We are under siege. By terrorizing the people, the Taliban have sown deep doubts about the government. The result? Angry protesters in the capital chanting death to Ashraf Ghani. If you can't secure the capital, how are you going to secure the rest of the country? You tell me, can you prevent the attack on New York? Can you prevent the attack on London? We're not talking about one attack. A series of attacks yeah. right here yeah, on your course. doorstep, a bomb that blew out the windows in your Absolutely. palace. Absolutely. That has uh, turned this city into something of a concrete what, prison. What, what's your alternative, ma'am? What is the alternative? The alternative is resolve. Resolve has come at a heavy cost. In just four months last year, more than 4,000 Afghan soldiers and police were wounded, another 2,500 killed. Since then, Ghani has refused to reveal casualty figures. As you'll see, it's a sensitive subject. Your soldiers and your policemen are dying in unprecedented numbers. Indeed. How long can that be sustained? Until we secure Afghanistan. How long is that? How as long, long until you as secure it takes. It? Generations, if need be. The U.S. isn't going to be here for generations. We will be here for generations. We do not need others to fight our fights. People in this country say that if the U.S. pulled out, your government would collapse in three days. From the resource perspective, they're absolutely right. We will not be able to support our army for six months without U.S. support and U.S. capabilities. Did you just say that without the U.S. support, your army couldn't last six months? Yes, because we don't have the money. American taxpayers bankroll 90% of Afghanistan's defense budget. That's more than $4 billion a year. Another $30 billion has been spent rebuilding this country. A bustling city has risen from the ruins. But in all the years we've been coming here, it's never been this dangerous. Checkpoints choke the traffic all over Kabul. It was as difficult to film as it was to move. Terrorists can strike at any time. Nobody knows that better than the men of this elite counter-terrorism unit. They rush to the scene of every attack, such as this one at a Kabul mosque, where a suicide bomber blew himself up just steps away. They took us beyond the barbed wire to the main military hospital, site of a chilling attack last year by the Islamic State, one of the many terror groups with a foothold in Kabul. The terrorists, they wore the white coats, like a doctor, yeah, yeah. right? We were told by commanders who were here that five terrorists disguised as doctors got past the hospital's heavy security. They were armed with assault rifles and a weapon that allowed them to quietly move from room to room. 
they had the knives and they mm, they killed a lot of people with that knife. So they, they were like, stabbing people in their beds, stabbing patients? Stabbing patients in, in their beds yeah, and opening their stomachs. This former lieutenant led the assault force that stormed the building. We agreed to conceal his identity to protect him from reprisals. They are very clever and they can do anything inside. They get into the buildings and they start shooting around and show the weakness of the government. Reinforcements landed on the roof. On the ledges below, you can see hospital workers hiding. When cornered, the terrorists detonated grenades strapped to their chests. They murdered more than 50 people that day. <laughs> Afghans normally bury their dead in a simple cloth shroud. That's not possible when bodies are obliterated by suicide bombers. It happens so often now, Kabul's carpenters have turned to something new, making coffins. There's also greater demand for prosthetic limbs. This orthopedic clinic is run by the International Committee of the Red Cross. You said the security situation is not getting any better. Definitely not. We cannot say. I don't, I don't see any improvement. Dr. Alberto Cairo has worked at the clinic for 27 years. He told us he's treating more and more victims of terror attacks. So, you know, many people um, far away from here think this war is over. What? The war is over. Please, how can they think of anything like this? No, the war is going on. People are very desperate. People are, they have lost the hope. Why do you say people have lost hope? If you consider that the lifespan of the, of the people in Afghanistan is around uh, 60 years, it means that at least two-thirds of them have seen only war, 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 war. With America's new strategy, more troops are in, time limits are out, and Pakistan is under pressure for being a safe haven for terrorists. General John Nicholson believes this will end the war, something we've heard from previous commanders. Do you have everything you need? Yeah, with the new policy, I do. This is it, right? I mean, there's no more. This is the end game. Yes, this is the end game. This is a policy that can deliver a win. Nicholson is targeting Taliban leaders. This car carried one of their high-ranking commanders and striking their largest source of revenue, the drug labs that turn Afghanistan's most common crop, opium, into heroin. The goal is to do what his predecessors have repeatedly tried and failed forced the Taliban to cut a deal. In 16 years, not a single Taliban fighter has renounced al-Qaeda or embraced, publicly embraced the Afghan constitution. Not a single one. In private, they do. They don't do it publicly. But they do it in private. It says it all that they won't do it publicly. I agree with you. Right? So why, all these years, people have been trying to bring the Taliban to the negotiating table. They've never come. I believe it's because they thought they could win because they believe we had lost our will to win. Because since 2009, when we announced the surge, we also announced our exit date. And so why, if your enemy is announced when he's leaving, then why would you negotiate? These people assisted Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda. And we're now saying to the American people, we can't defeat them, so we're going to negotiate and put them in the government. No, we're killing them in large numbers. 
they can either lay down their weapons and rejoin society and be a part of the future of Afghanistan and have a better life for their children and themselves, or they can die. You know, many Americans look at this and they say, you know, we've been there 16 years. It's enough now. We should, we should just come home. Our country hadn't been attacked in those 16 years. They haven't been attacked from Afghanistan. A lot of people at home just don't buy that terrorists are coming from Afghanistan to attack them at home. They're worried about the guy going to rent a truck from Home Depot and drive into a crowd of civilians. Well, this raises the point. We need to defeat the ideology. If we were to lose here or if we were to leave here, the cost would be unacceptable. Why? It would uh, embolden jihadists globally, those living in our own countries. It would convince them of the uh, ultimate success of their cause. In my view, the cost of failure here is unacceptable. How are you, Captain? Good, how are you, sir? Yeah, very good to see you guys. General John Nicholson told us he's giving himself two years to deliver major changes. But it's hard not to be skeptical in a city where the enemy has driven American forces from the roads into the sky. Since we first broadcast our story, General John Nicholson has made securing the capital a priority. He's ordered more special operations missions inside Kabul to target the Taliban and terrorist networks attacking the city. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love. Or visit www.pacificlife.com. Last week marked the official start of hurricane season. Forecasters predict it'll be another active one, though not as brutal as last year's, when three major storms made landfall in parts of the U.S., including Hurricane Maria, which devastated the island of Puerto Rico. As we first reported in November, Chef Jose Andres went to Puerto Rico a few days after the storm hit to see how he could help. He's an expert in avant-garde cooking, not disaster relief. But as soon as he got to Puerto Rico, Chef Andres began doing what he does best. He found a kitchen, bought some ingredients, and began to cook. That first day, Andres and his small team made about a thousand meals. They recruited an army of chefs and volunteers, and since then, they've served more than three and a half million meals to the hungry people of Puerto Rico. Voy subiendo, voy bajando. Tú vives como yo vivo, yo vivo cocinando. Jose Andres is always on the move. Hey! In the kitchen, which has become his base of operations in San Juan, Boom. he's a culinary commander rallying his troops. Una más. Voy subiendo, voy bajando. Preparing meals for so many people is a massive undertaking, requiring trained chefs, thousands of volunteers, assembly lines of sandwiches, 900 on this table alone. 
good ham, good cheese, a lot, a lot of, of mayo. mayo. There's a lot of mayonnaise here. Yeah. It's all the more remarkable because none of this was set up before Jose Andres got to Puerto Rico. I arrived Monday right after the hurricane, and I asked, who is in charge of feeding the people of Puerto Rico? And they told me, um, everybody. Everybody's in charge. You know, when you have to feed an entire island, you need to have one, one person and one organization responsible. There has to be a plan. Has to be a plan, and somebody has to be responsible for achieving that plan. Andres came up with his own plan to feed as many of the islands, nearly three and a half million people, as possible. He started with $10,000 of his own money in cash and pockets full of credit cards. I mean, how do you arrive at a place, you know, you don't know where the food is, you don't know where access to water is. How did you get off the ground here? So for me, it was not difficult. The first thing I do, you're a chef. You go and you try to find a kitchen. Everybody was saying, it's no food, it's no food. Well, that was not true. The big food distribution companies had food because they had fuel, they had diesel. They kept the refrigerators and the freezers working. There was food here. Plenty of food. What was the problem? The problem was the urgency of now. Uh, it's a very simple thing when you're a cook. When you're hungry, you gather the food, you gather your helpers, you begin cooking, and then you start feeding people. He joined up with a local chef named Jose Enrique and other volunteers, cooking enormous pans of paella and stews in a parking lot in San Juan. It wasn't long before they were making more than 100,000 meals a day. How did you scale it up that quickly? Well, uh, you know one thing, when these moments happen, we have a tendency to think, oh, we have to feed three million people. Almost the idea is impossible. Seems overwhelming. It's totally overwhelming, but all of a sudden, imagine you began breaking this. We're gonna be doing now 25,000 meals. And when you do it well for two days, you increase it to 50,000. And when you do it well, you increase it to 100,000. And all of a sudden, you scale up in a way that is simple. It's a big pan. That's uh, chicken, chickpeas. We try to put good amount of proteins, rice, every Puerto Rican. I love rice. Ingredients are often improvised. They cook whatever they can buy. Techniques are improvised as well. Jennifer Herrera says a prayer for Puerto Rico as she pours oil into each pan of rice. Que Dios bendiga Puerto Rico. Que Dios bendiga Puerto Rico. The time it takes her to say God bless Puerto Rico is the exact amount of oil she says she needs. How many blessings do you give Puerto Rico every day? Thousands of blessings. With the help of private donations and money from the federal government, Jose Andres' nonprofit organization, World Central Kitchen, has prepared more hot meals than any of the other bigger, more experienced disaster relief organizations here, like the Salvation Army and the Red Cross. Most agencies, if they're giving out food, they're giving out MREs or snacks or not hot meals. Americans should be receiving one plate a day of hot food. That's not too much to ask in America. An MRE is very expensive for the American taxpayer. A hot meal is more affordable, it's cheaper, it's what people really need, it's what people really want. They feel all of a sudden that you are caring for them, that America is caring for them. You're not just giving calories, you're giving attention to, to people. The calories 
are obvious, but this is a message of hope. This is a message we care and be patient. Things eventually will get better. That message of hope is one Andres has been preaching on social media. So, great, we got the refrigerator and fresh produce. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Documenting his efforts to expand operations around the entire island. At the height of the emergency, he had 18 kitchens going at once. And used trucks, cars, and anyone he could find to deliver meals. All of a sudden, I have Homeland Security helping us deliver sandwiches and water in the most difficult areas of uh, the island. I had quotes from the U.S. Coast Guard helping us, volunteering. We were having uh, so many different men and women coming from, from the federal government helping us. There are still plenty of places that need the help. In this community, an hour south of San Juan, there's no electricity. This is the first hot meal this family has eaten in more than two weeks. Andres's dedication has inspired others in Puerto Rico to set up kitchens of their own. In a church perched in the mountains of Naguabo, Pastor Eliomar Santana and his parishioners cook hot meals for neighboring communities with the rice, beans, and sausages Andres has provided them. We have people here with no water, no, no lights. They, they lost everything in their house, and they have stopped thinking on that for helping others. So even though some of your parishioners need help, they're still volunteering here? Yeah, they're still volunteering. They're still trying to help other people? They're still trying to help other people. Before delivering the food to a nearby housing project, Pastor Santana thanks God and then Jose Andres. In the church, when you were praying, you thanked God first, and second, you thanked Jose Andres. Yes, that's very important. But I have to say, always say, God first, then Jose. <laughs> well, Jose's in good company. Andres's presence has not been without controversy. He's been critical of the federal government's response to the hurricane. And after attending meetings with FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, he called their headquarters in San Juan the most inefficient place on earth. Was that the frustration that it was just bureaucratic? That there were a lot of meetings and you felt like things weren't getting done? We were already feeding 100,000 people a day and I needed their help to make sure we had money to keep buying the food, to keep feeding these never-ending lists of people in need. And there is where, call it red tape, nothing was happening. FEMA did award Andres's World Central Kitchen two short-term contracts worth $11.5 million to provide 1.8 million meals. But the agency refused to grant them a third, longer-term contract. Andres thinks the overall response to disaster relief needs to change. The people of the federal government are great people. But then it's red tape that sometimes doesn't allow that same people to be successful. I didn't put the name emergency on FEMA. I didn't. But somebody's going to have to tell me the meaning of emergency. To me, when we're talking about food, and this is the little thing I know, is that emergency in food means one thing. People are hungry. And when you're hungry, it's today. FEMA says, look, to negotiate a big contract, we hit, there's a bidding process. You have to have three different companies bidding on it, that there's federal government regulations. You say that gets in the way of... Americans in Puerto Rico were hungry. 
and we were not delivering food quick enough. And what we did is we didn't plan, we didn't meet. We began cooking and we began delivering food to the people in need in Puerto Rico. And what we need to make sure is that next time we are not negotiating contracts, that next time the federal government is ready to do what they are supposed to do. Next time something like this happens, maybe an earthquake, maybe another hurricane, or maybe a terrorist attack, we need to make sure we are ready because the people of America don't deserve anything less. Jose Andres' passion for disaster relief is a far cry from what excited him when we first met him in his restaurant in Beverly Hills in 2010. That's, liquid nitrogen. That's liquid nitrogen. Back then, he was leading a kind of culinary revolution, pioneering innovations in molecular gastronomy, marrying science with food in surprising and playful ways. Are you ready for this? Because I believe your life is going to change forever. <laughs> I mean it. This is going to change my life? Uh, maybe. <laughs> okay. I don't know why I keep doing stories about food, because I don't really eat much and never really think much about food, but it's so interesting to me how, f for you, food is at the center of everything. Anderson, food touches everything. Food is in our DNA. Food touches the economy. Food is science. Food is romanticism. Food is health. Food has many of the opportunities to have a better tomorrow. That philosophy is at the heart of Andres's humanitarian efforts around the globe. He founded World Central Kitchen after the earthquake in Haiti in 2010. And, you know, I've been here more than 25 times to Haiti. Last June, months before Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, we met up with Jose Andres in Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince. We should be having here the freshest fish every day. He supports an orphanage here and has established a job training program for local chefs. He's also spearheading an effort to reduce the widespread use of charcoal in cooking. Long-term exposure to smoke from cooking indoors on fires kills an estimated 4 million people worldwide every year, most of them women and children. Andres has provided cleaner-burning propane gas stoves to more than 100 schools in Haiti, like this one in Port-au-Prince. I mean, focusing on stoves, on the idea of clean-cooked stoves, is not something that a lot of people think about. I am a cook. I feed a few but I've always been super interested in feeding the many. And when I've seen some of these women doing the change from the charcoal to the gas, everything changes around them. When we see this woman cooking in the street with charcoal and we eat the plate of food, we should all be asking ourselves how that plate of food can really become an agent of change. An agent of change? A true agent of change, one plate at a time. How is that? Jose Andres spent Thanksgiving in Puerto Rico, continuing to feed people one plate at a time. This has been his biggest undertaking thus far. Every time it's a rainbow, you know things are going to get better. He still maintains a small presence on the island as life returns to normal. But he's already thinking about how he can do things better the next time disaster strikes. I'm Steve Croft. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes.
Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.